Hi, I'm Stephen Hawking and I think the deactivist live streams are the best thing to happen since I died. everyone and welcome to the show we're here with gene tony gene how you doing good thanks randall how are you i'm pretty well pretty well uh for people who don't know you why don't you give us a little background uh about yourself and what you do okay i'm an economist i've got my own consultancy business adept economics so i do project work for different clients uh private businesses non-profits uh, some government agencies councils so often business cases for different projects or analysis of different policies or or programs um yep so i've been doing that for the last 10 years or so before that i was in the federal treasury so yeah i've got a broad background in uh, in economics and you've also got your podcast as well with over 130 odd episodes i think so far Yep, yep. Economics explored. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, that's going well. I'm really happy with how that's going. And I mean, we've covered, you know, a wide variety of issues on that, including housing and inflation and the RBA and the current review of the RBA. So, uh, yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's going really well. What's the current review of the RBA? Is it to get rid of it? Because uh, I'm all for that. <laughs> No, some people might like, might want that. Uh, I don't know if, uh, uh, yeah, there are some libertarians out there who are pushing for, uh, you know, the abolition of uh, central banks and the abolition of uh, fiat currency. Uh, but no, they they're not going to do that. <laughs> um, they, I mean, they probably won't do anything too radical. They might make some changes to the board composition they might make some changes to the language around what the reserve bank's supposed to do in terms of targeting inflation um but yeah there, there won't be any radical changes uh, i'm afraid uh particularly if you look at the people who are who are going to be doing the review they've got an academic economist uh they've got a former uh government bureaucrat gordon de brewer and then they've got a deputy head of the bank the central bank of canada so you've got fairly mainstream people there so i don't think we'll see big changes having said that though it uh i mean the reserve bank certainly needs reviewing because there's been a lot of concern that uh that they, their policy settings have been wrong at different times and uh, phil lowe is you know arguably uh, misled people last year and there are a lot of people who are concerned about that uh, his forecast 
which was widely reported that interest rates wouldn't be increasing until 2024. <laughs> and that was, he was saying that late last year. And, uh, and so, you know, now they've already gone up from 0.1. This is the official cash rate, the overnight cash rate, mm -hmm. which is lower than what people pay for for home mortgages. Uh, now it's at 1.35. It'll go up to 1.85 tomorrow. Oh, sorry, not tomorrow, on Tuesday next week. Um, Was that, yeah. is, is that just people wishful thinking that believed that it wouldn't go up till 2024? I mean, we had mass quantity of easing and I mean, the inflation followed and then the logical step was, yeah, interest rates are going to go up. So who was saying, yeah, we, we, we can hold off till 2024? Well, I guess there was this view that the economy had, had changed. And I mean, there was quantitative easing, not in Australia, but in other countries after, during and after the financial crisis. Uh, so starting around 09, 010, mm, mm. and there were people forecasting, oh, this is going to lead to runaway inflation at the time, and, and uh, that didn't really happen. And But, I mean, what we're seeing in the last, well, over the pandemic period is that we've had, you know, more quantitative easing and we've had big budget deficits to try to s stimulate the economy as well. And I think the, the combination of that ha has meant that, uh, you know, inflation has, uh, has really soared. Uh, so they were lucky last time. It, it didn't happen last time. They got away with it. I think perhaps they thought that they might be able to get away with it again. Um, so, yep, they were wrong. <laughs> Imagine my shock that they might have been mm. a little bit wrong about that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I guess first off, one of my first questions would be, um, as you see it, is it all doom and gloom for Australia or are we in a, in a place we have to be? Where, where do you see us going over the next 12 to 18 months? Well, I don't think it's, uh, it's doom and gloom for Australia. I mean, really, uh, I mean, things have been pretty good when you think about it. I mean, we recovered very strongly from the pandemic and unemployment is now at three and a half percent, right? This is extraordinary. And now there's talk about sign-on bonuses. I don't know how legit this, uh, this report is, but there was a report in Perth now that McDonald's in WA are paying sign-on bonuses of $1,000 just due to the shortage of people, how difficult it is to get people. And the mining sector is paying $10,000 sign-on bonuses just to, to get people. There's a shortage. Partly that's related to the fact that uh, we haven't had, you know, we've, I mean, immigration starting to increase now, but we had a year or so when we weren't letting anyone in the country. Mm. And, uh, yeah, so I guess we'll, we'll start to see that impacting wages and then that could, I mean, that could end up leading to, inflation itself. I mean, one of the things we want to avoid is what they call a wage price spiral, where inflation just keeps feeding on itself and prices and wages just sort of uh, go up in this, uh, they, they, one leads to, so higher wages lead to higher prices, higher prices for, lead to higher wages because people need to be compensated for that and they push for it in their wage bargaining. 
So, yeah, that's the sort of thing that um, people are concerned about. The uh, So the unemployment rate typically when there's high inflation will be low, uh, and I think that's on the Phillips curve, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, um, yeah, I guess, yeah, yeah. Can I you guess just the issue... explain that for, the, for the, the layman watching? Yeah, yeah, okay. I, I might go... I probably should finish the previous question first. I will get onto that, Randall. I just realised you asked me about if it's gloomy. I, I don't want to be too positive because, yep, there certainly are <laughs> risks in Australia. I better clarify that because of the rising interest rates. And it looks like, I mean, people probably, uh, many households possibly overextended themselves, borrowed too much. There was that fear of missing out. And so therefore, as interest rates increase even though they're not going to get up to the really crazy levels that they got up to in the late 80s when they were up around 17 18 percent i mean that won't happen but i mean still many households could get into trouble we've seen consumer confidence really uh plummet and it's at levels you'd you really you'd associate it with you would associate with before like just before a downturn or a recession so they're, they're levels you'd that are almost recessionary. I think one of the the bank economists, uh, I think it may have been the ANZ economist, who uh, who said that. So there's certainly concerns about that. On uh, on this point about unemployment and inflation, yes. I mean the traditional view, and this is a view that we learned was not correct. It broke down in the in the 70s. Was that there is this trade-off between unemployment and inflation because well if you i mean one story you can tell is if you have low unemployment that means that workers have more bargaining power okay their <clears throat> labor is is scarce and so workers are able to negotiate better with with their bosses and that pushes up wages so that's the theory um so far, at least in the official data, we've had up till March. We haven't really seen a wages breakout in Australia. I mean, that's why there was all that talk about you know declining real wages, and I think that that cost uh, Scott Morrison at the last election. Uh, that was a, a really uh, a strong attacking point that the op that the then opposition, now government, were able to make against uh, the then government that uh, you've got inflation running at, at the time it was 5.1%, now it's 6.1% yearly, and wages are only growing at 2.5%. So you've got a real wage decline of, of over 2.5%. So yeah. that's, that was a bit of a worry. Um, so, yeah, so the traditional story was that if you had low unemployment, you'd get high inflation. Uh, conversely, you could, if you wanted to... Uh, yeah, if you wanted to cut, if you wanted to reduce inflation, you had to have high unemployment because that would give workers less bargaining power. Okay, so there's this trade-off between unemployment and inflation. And this was based on a, a study by a New Zealand economist, Bill Phillips, who was actually an engineer, but he was a, an economist as well. And he was at, I think he, was, he might have been at LSE in London at the time. And uh, he looked at, UK wages data and 
unemployment data and he noticed that there was this uh there were actually how should i draw this so it's you people <laughs> yeah. can see it i'm not Maybe sure exactly like how i should draw it yeah it's a it's a it's a trade-off and it's yeah. uh it's uh convex to the origin i think you you just you would describe it uh, as, as I a asked you to talk to the layman and you say convex to sorry the yeah I shouldn't have said that but it's <laughs> it's a it's a curve so it's not a straight line but it's it's a yeah. curve it's a trade-off yeah. so um what that would mean is if you uh yeah if you really did want if you had there's a you can have higher unemployment but it's only going it's going to increasingly it's going to reduce inflation less and less as as it gets yeah. up higher that the incremental change is going to be less and less so yeah should that was probably shouldn't have gone there um yeah but that whole thing sort of broke down in the 70s because what we noticed is that there wasn't this stable trade-off between inflation and unemployment what there was was uh, uh you know the, the possibility that you could have both high unemployment and high inflation and indeed you could have unemployment increasing and inflation increasing you could have what's called stagflation and so there's no real trade-off in the long run between unemployment and inflation you can have high unemployment and high inflation at the same time if people come to expect inflation if there are what you call inflationary expectations if if they increase hmm. um yeah and so that's one of the concerns that people have about the global economy at the moment so the imf world economic outlook came out overnight so it came out uh tuesday in uh in in uh, the us and uh yeah it, it was it's gloomy it's talking about a gloomy outlook globally and i think it does i'm trying to remember if it, it it's it's suggesting well yeah very high in inflation globally was it six or seven it was it was a high rate i'll have to just just check it but there's a lot of talk globally about stagflation whether we'll end up in stagflation and there's acknowledgement by international agencies that we could end up in a situation uh, with uh, with high unemployment and infl high inflation down the track, I mean it's not it's not likely at the same at at the moment. I mean we are having we are having global growth slow down because we've had this shock from the war in Ukraine, which has increased the oil price and petrol prices. So one of the reasons you can have a, a stagflation is if you have this shock to the economy such as higher oil prices which push up the costs of production and that means that it's less profitable for businesses to produce what they were what they were doing and so that could lead to reductions in economic activity and at the same time as it's increasing costs of production and increasing that that's passed on to consumers and increases prices so that's the that's one of the great concerns now yeah, I mean that that's certainly something that you know people are concerned about, and you know you couldn't rule it out as a possibility. Uh, I'd like to be a bit more optimistic 
than that though uh but you know so much depends on what happens with uh with this war in U ukraine and whether we can resolve that whether we can whether the oil prices are coming down but they're still higher than they they were a few years ago um so a lot's going to depend on you know what happens there whether and i mean also the pandemic which is causing all sorts of problems with the supply chain it's very disruptive things just don't work now as they did before i mean you'd see you see all the the delays with Qantas and the disruptions that are that are occurring oh, i don't know if you saw the the lineup for Qantas i think 2 days ago but it was out the door all the way down the road for for Qantas flights in Sydney, like all the way. Yeah, the road. never yeah. seen it like that. It's insane. Um, I did want to ask you, and perhaps you should um, explain the theory first, um, because the question from Q, which disappeared off the chat, um, was whether the RBA will actually increase interest rates enough to slow down inflation. But first of all, how? Oh, they will. What, what is that theory, though? How does that work? And then, and then, what what do we expect the rate to probably go to? Okay. Well, the theory is that let's begin with the fact that inflation is a monetary phenomenon. So this is this is a famous quote from Milton Friedman. So inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenom phenomenon. In that. It's associated with an expansion of the supply of money or the stock of money. So this is currency that we have, but it's largely, it's also, it's, it's mostly deposits sitting in the bank accounts of households and, and businesses. Okay, so there's a general view, or there's the view that, or the, the understanding that we end up with inflation because the amount of money is expanding and it's expanding faster than the capacity of the economy. So what we have is too much money chasing too few goods. Okay, so inflation is a monetary phenomen phenomenon. The central bank, the reserve bank is responsible for the money supply. And so therefore it's the RBA that has responsibility for dealing with inflation through monetary policy. So the way they do that is by manipulating the overnight cash rate. This is the standard way of doing it, the official cash rate. This is in a, the, what they call a cash market, which is a market in which banks and, and other, well, other um, market participants will borrow money overnight and you know, banks need money so that they can settle their accounts with each other at, at the RBA. In, uh, and so the RBA controls this overnight interest rate and what it's trying to do is it's trying to influence all the interest rates in the economy that are on, that are of a longer term and so what it happens is as the cash rate increases, though the cost of borrowing money overnight increases, and that has a knock-on effect to the cost of borrowing money for 30 days and six months and 12 months, et cetera, et cetera. 
what they're trying to do there is uh, a few things, and they the RBA talks about different channels by which monetary policy works. Now, I mean, let's think about what those channels are. I mean, one of those channels is through the the amount of credit that's created in the economy. One of the reasons we've had the big expansion in the money supply in the last couple of years during the pandemic, it's not just because of the quantitative easing that the bank has engaged in, it's not just because of their own money printing and their purchases of bonds, it's also because with the very low interest rates that the bank has set, that's meant that more people have borrowed money or the bigger mortgages. So we've had this expansion of housing credit and the new credit, so the net additions to the net, the housing credit, that is expanding the money supply. I mean, there's additional money in the economy. Okay, so one, one thing that the bank needs to do through increasing interest rates is reducing the amount of borrowing for housing and new credit creation. So that's one thing they're trying to do. The other way it works is, is possibly more, more direct or more immediate. It's the fact that, uh, I mean, when they increase the cash rate and, uh, and that flows through to variable interest rates, uh, mortgage rates, and eventually to fixed rates when they reset, if people have fixed rates for a few years and then they reset at higher interest rates, what that means is households have less money to spend. They're paying more to the bank. The bank gets the money, but the bank may not necessarily lend it to someone who's going to spend it then. So um, you have this subtraction from demand that way. So that's another channel by which monetary policy works. What the, what the bank, what the Reserve Bank, what all central banks are trying to do is they're trying to take some of the heat, well, they're trying to take the heat out of the economy. They want to have the economy go on this Goldilocks path, not too hot, not too cold. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, yeah. And so let's, with the interest rate increases, the idea is you can pull some money out of the economy or have the money supply expand at a slower rate or even contract so that uh, so that you can get inflation under control. And because you've got less, people don't have as much to spend, that puts less pressure on the economy. It's not overheating. There's not as much, there's not as much demand out there. There's not as much money chasing the good, the 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 uh, the few goods that we we talked about before. Too much money chasing too few goods. So, yeah, yeah it's a. Uh, that's the general idea. There are multiple channels. We know that if you do increase interest rates, it does. Eventually, slow the economy. Uh, the The great challenge is knowing how far you have to to do that, and it's not always obvious in advance how much you have to do that, and. The problem in the 80s, the late 80s and, uh, and in the lead up to the, the recession is that uh, they discovered that they really did have to increase those interest rates a lot to be able to slow the economy. 
Yeah, I, I was going to ask the question, but then I was reading a comment and I, I, uh, <laughs> I got sidetracked. Oh, is the comment great. okay? Yeah, yeah. It was just, um, should Australia be concerned with China's financial issues um, that seem to be compounding? Um, and also, I mean, uh, there's crazy images coming out of China of, of the tanks rolling in front of the banks, not letting people get money out. Um, what are your thoughts on what's going on in China? Will it will it impact us? I know that's kind of off topic to inflation and uh, the housing market, but what are your oh, initial I guess, thoughts? Yeah, I guess everything's connected. Is your internet connection okay, Randall? You're coming. You're a bit uh, oh, distorted. No. I can't. Uh, let me know in the comments if you guys can hear me, um, so we can figure out whose internet is uh, is bad. <laughs> right. Okay. Are you a bit better now? Okay. So China, look, uh, I mean, clearly we, we need to worry about what happens with China, given that it, it has become such a an important part of the global economy. Um, and yes, I mean, if they did have a, if the Chinese economy did crash, I mean, it is slowing. So we know that um, it has been slowing down and the IMF is concerned about the outlook. I mean, there are risks from, yeah, that, that the property market, uh, the and construction sector. We know about Evergrande. Um, look, yeah, it could be a, could be a real concern for us because so much of the commodities boom that we experienced starting around 2003, so we had the first phase of that over about 2003 through to 2013, and, uh, and then late, uh, to late last decade, it, commodity prices started rising again. Then there was a bit of a, 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 a downturn before, well, I think coal prices came down even before the pandemic. Um, but yeah, since since uh, sort of last end of last year, I think they started they started picking up with the global recovery. The global recovery was stronger than we thought, and then this year, commodity prices have gone absolutely nuts because of uh, what's happened in Ukraine. Um, so I guess yeah, I mean China is important um, at the moment. It's it's hard to. Yeah, it's hard to forecast what would happen if we did have a downturn in China because they're probably, given all the other the disruptions that have occurred in the world and the fact that they need our the world needs our coal uh, and coal prices are are crazily high because of that, um, we'd probably we'd be okay in terms of coal. Iron ore would suffer because China's been a major purchaser of of that um so yeah i mean it certainly would be uh would be a problem um so yeah but look i mean it's hard to know what's going on with china uh, just a very difficult place to understand really yeah um i did remember my other question because it relates to housing as well you were talking about interest rates uh hitting the economy at different times because a lot of people on mortgages might be on a fixed-term mortgage and that might go for X number of years. So that flow-on effect might not hit them 
and might not actually reflect in the numbers until years down the track. So what do you think we can expect for uh, the housing market given that interest rates are just going to keep going up? Well, housing prices are already uh, coming down. I don't know if you've seen those statistics, uh, but Christopher Joy, who was who's uh, you know one of the top financial commentators in Australia, he writes for the Australian Financial Review. I've actually done some work for him in the past. He's I mean he's an incredibly bright guy. He's got a company called Coolabar uh, Capital Investment, and I mean they're you know they've got billions of dollars of money under management, so they're you know they're really paying attention to this stuff. Um, Look, you just look at what the losses in or the reductions in housing prices since the first interest rate increase in May, and this is suggesting that, look, this is already impacting households. Because there, I don't know the exact breakdown. I, I should have looked it up before I got on. But, there, I mean, there <laughs> are a lot of households that are on variable rates. Uh, and, I mean, we see in the data that uh, that house prices are are falling. I mean, I guess that's that will be because as the interest rates increase, people will be able to, they won't be able to borrow as much as as uh, they could have previously, and so that means they're not, they don't have as much, well, they can't go to the auction with the the same expectations as they did before. Or maybe they're more cautious about borrowing. They they're more concerned. They're less willing to to uh, to bid at an auction because they are worried about the the future. We know that consumer confidence has dropped. So I think it has. The interest rate increases have started to have an impact through. <coughs> yeah. The, so there are obviously enough people worried about it, and it's also impacting prices because it's reducing the ability of people to uh, the amounts that they can borrow uh, so what we've seen is sydney's fallen five percent melbourne three percent brisbane uh around one percent that's since may that's since the the first rate hike capital cities overall about minus two and a half percent So look, yeah, we are seeing prices going down. Now. Sorry, no, go on. I was just saying you're recovering from COVID, and I forgot to thank you for coming on. While, oh, oh while my pleasure. Sick. I I usually think I'm okay. I thought I thought I was okay before I started, and then uh, <laughs> as I keep talking, it should be okay. Um, and so what Chris was writing was. was that um, if you look at Sydney, it's declining at an annual rate of 22%. So house prices are falling, and uh, it looks like they're falling at an accelerating rate. That's a huge number to be dropping at 22%. That's if, that's if you take the rate it's dropping at at the moment and annualise it. Right. Okay. So it may, not, it may not last over the year. Although, look, it's possible that it could. Um, I mean, house prices soared during that pandemic period, even though many forecasters were expecting they might they might fall. Yeah. They actually surged because 
there was all this additional borrowing. There's the fear of missing out. And, um, yeah, the market went nuts. And so, mm. I mean, they'll probably, they'll probably land above where they were at the start of the pandemic, but a lot of the gains will have been lost. It's looking mm. like that now. Because, yeah, those interest rate increases are having more of an impact than, than was expected. Yeah, I, I couldn't believe how much housing prices rose during the pandemic. It, it was just so counter to what I thought was going to happen. Um, but it did, and I guess we're going to see that correction. Um, probably not an overcorrection, though. Maybe, like you said, probably just just above pre-pandemic levels. Um yeah, yeah, and that's what we're seeing. It's 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 it started for sure. The big unknown is just how vulnerable households are to to interest rate increases, and whether you know you will start. Well, they will massively cut back on their spending, and that could uh, that could then lead to a, a downturn. I mean, at the moment, the labour market's going ridiculously strongly. We've got three and a half percent unemployment. 300,000 vacancies, I think. I saw someone report the other day. But does the um, unemployment figure, uh, that includes people actively looking for work, right? Yes. So so I, I'm not sure if that's a great signal to our strength if there's a lot of vacancies and a lot of people looking for work, or am I missing something? But that's showing that there's very there's hardly anyone looking for work compared with before the pandemic right and there's lots of vacancies so the and this is why we would expect wages to start increasing or we, or perhaps we hope that they they will i think they they probably are we're certainly seeing well the the, the sign-on bonuses that have been reported i mean there's that story about mcdonald's I mean, who knows whether that's true or not? I mean, it's hard to know whether McDonald's would be paying a $1,000 sign-on bonuses, but that was the Perth Now report. I believe I mean, I it could, in the mining could, sector, though. Yeah, I could fly to Perth for like 400 bucks, have a job for a week, and I'll pay for my holiday, and then I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll come yeah. right back. You probably have to serve out some, some time. I'm sure they've got something in their, their agreement to to cover that. Um, yeah, uh, so yeah, I think the unknown is just how the economy will react as interest rates uh, increase, and just how much people will cut back their spending, and whether you know we could be in a we had a boom and then we'll we'll have a bust. One of the challenges is going to be, um, and this is a big big issue for the the new government. You you will recall that the they, the previous government cut the fuel excise in half. Yeah, and so it's down at about twenty-two cents uh, a liter now, and, and what's going to happen is that that's going to go up to must be forty-four cents because they cut it in half at the end of September, and um, yeah, you'll you'll people will notice that unless oil price unless petrol prices come down a bit more, they'll really notice that, and uh, yeah, that's going to come at a bad time because we know interest rates are still going to go up. They'll, they'll go up half a percentage point next week. What are, your, uh, what are your thoughts on how 
the Albanese government is going to shake up the economy. Uh, I guess some of the things they were promising, like uh, I guess the government uh, backing certain home loans by 40% and things like that, um, is, does there anything anything about his election pro, election promises uh, stand out to you that will have a big impact? Oh, look, not really. I mean, they're they're actually. I mean, they're not that they wouldn't implement policies I that I would probably implement it at the moment to try to get inflation under control. They wouldn't do that. They wouldn't go that far I mean, th there was a discussion that we How had this would morning. <laughs> well i think we have to we have to massively reduce this budget deficit we've got now so jim chalmers the treasurer is he's talking about the need for savings the one of the reasons they've got to find savings i mean the, they need to get the debt under control the trillion dollar debt but also because the government at the moment is contributing to the inflation problem we've got by running these large budget deficits, still large, what you call a structural budget deficit, where you, sorry, Randall, I'm getting some echo from you at your end. I must be. Sorry, let me fix that. That's okay. Go for it. So, yeah, so they're still running these large structural deficits of three to four percent of gdp if you look at the the budget uh, documents so what that means is that uh, if you adjust for the state of the economy you take into account the fact that the economy has been doing very well at this point in time the government should be running uh, well much smaller deficits or, or surpluses than they actually are and they're not they're still running reasonably sizable deficits and uh, so there's this structural deficit and that's contributing to inflation they're they're adding to the demand in the economy they're contributing to the overheating so what the federal government has to do is to really cut back on their spending or I mean, one alternative, I don't know whether they'll do it or not because they promised that they they would follow the Stage 3 tax cuts. I think it's Stage 3. There's another tax cut coming through uh, that's going to knock out one of the marginal tax brackets, if I remember correctly. And so there are some people on on the left who are arguing that the government shouldn't go through with those those tax cuts that are programmed in. I mean, that's one possible thing they, they could do, but what the, to, um, to address that structural deficit, I mean, I'd probably prefer that they cut their spending because they've got some big spending programs that they really, that are really getting out of control. So NDIS, so it's well-intentioned. I think a lot of people support the principle of it, but I mean, it's growing, you know, it's tens of billions of dollars, 30 billion or whatever. Uh, it's going to be, uh, it's going to overtake Medicare in terms of the amount of money over the four that, that's spent on it over the, the budget estimates over the next four years. 
So that's something they've really got to get under control, but that's going to be difficult for them. I, um, I think the I think the NDIS keeps expanding because for every left wing person, they need someone to support them because they're all a little bit disabled. Um, <laughs> look, I think it's I think it's a well intentioned program. The challenge is, I mean, how do you? Yeah, where do you where do you limit it? That that's the problem. There's the desire to keep expanding it and. Um, to make it uh, to provide as high a level of service as possible. And I think, yeah, that's just financially unsustainable at the moment. We need to really fix that up. Um, okay, so that's that's what I think needs to happen, that there needs to be um, expenditure restraint or, you know, larger cuts than anything Jim Chalmers would be would be contemplating. I mean, look, I, you know, I'm former Treasury, so you know, Treasury would have their own, they would have provided some list of the things that should be cut. And I mean, knowing how these things work, Treasury will have this huge book full of potential thing, savings that could occur and the government will probably pick a, you know, a handful of them <laughs> because they look at most of the things Treasury's proposing and they go, how could you ever contemplate cutting all of these things? Are you politically naive? So, I mean, that, that's what will happen. That'll be the reality. Um, well, but look, I mean, this government. Well, one of my questions is that, I mean, allowing the RBA, I know the RBA is supposed to be a separate entity, but I mean, you know, allowing the RBA to increase interest rates to such a level that's going to hurt your voter base, it, it's almost political suicide. And I know they don't really have a say, but uh, I mean, there was that kind of situation where I think it was, um, I think it was R Roosevelt who, who, who grabbed one of the members of the Federal Reserve by the scruff of his neck and was like, you're, you're destroying my presidency. Um, so is there a situation where uh, the Australian government can, can effectively halt the interest rate rise for political reasons or, is, or do we have enough kind of checks and balances to stop that happening? Okay. Uh, so they actually could there's they have the the power to do that i'm trying to remember this is a point that nick gruen often makes uh, uh i think i'm trying to remember correctly i think there's a provision in the reserve bank act that the treasurer can table something in parliament and you know tell the rba what to do right so mm. the the treasurer could could direct the rba and I don't know if you remember, uh, back in the 80s, uh, we had a treasurer, Paul Keating, the Labor treasurer at the time, and he gave a, a famous or probably infamous speech. It was in the lead up to his challenge to Hawke when he uh, he said, oh, I'm like the Placido Domingo of Australian politics and I've got the treasury in, in this pocket and I've got the RBA in the other pocket. <laughs> and it was a great speech. He said, it was a great talker, Keating. <laughs> Um, he, he was not a modest man. He was a not at all. He was a very confident man, and uh, but yeah, I mean, Keating thought he ran the RBA. Uh, so back in the day, the, the government had a lot more control over the RBA. The problem then is that I mean, you don't want monetary policy set by the government because for that mm, reason, because the government's going to want to have it more well looser. They want to have. They probably want. 
to have the the economy more prosperous in time for their re-election, and they're not thinking longer term about what the inflationary consequences of that are. So, what economists have learned from that problem, the problem that if you have a central bank politically influenced and you can get you can get higher inflation, is we need to have central banks independent of the government. So we need to give them some independence. And so what our governments have done is that they've struck an agreement with the Reserve Bank. There's a, an agreement on the conduct of monetary policy that was first, I think it was first formalised by Peter Costello and Ian McFarlane in the 90s, in 96. And what that did was that codified in an agreement the inflation targeting goal that we have now. So the central bank, the, the Reserve Bank is targeting inflation between 2 to 3% on average over the, the economic cycle. So it's a, which means that they don't have to be zealous or just they don't have to solely target inflation. If they're going to crash the economy, they could ease up a little bit on interest rate increases. But ultimately, their goal is to get inflation under control, get it at two to three percent. That's how they're kept account that that's what they're accountable for. And so they're going to be doing everything they can without crashing the economy to to get inflation under control. But look, who knows? I mean we hope we're not in a situation that the Americans or that or that we were in the late eighties or the Americans were in the sort of early early eighties where in and Britain too, when you really had to increase interest rates a lot to to get inflation under control because you had double-digit inflation. Now, we're not there yet, so hopefully we've moved in time to prevent that from occurring. But if you get to a situation where you've got double-digit inflation, then you might have to increase interest rates much more than you know, that the economy can bear, and then you end up in a crash. I, I don't, I'd like to think that we've... We haven't left it too late and we'll need to resort to those measures, but yeah, let, let's, let's wait and see. So I guess the answer is that, yeah, the government could, it could direct the RBA, but then look, I mean, the, the bad press they would get over that would just be, it would be incredible. You'd have all the financial journalists around the country uh, criticising them over uh, compromising the independence of the RBA. Jim Chalmers wouldn't be able to, to finish a, a press conference. Uh, You're acting brutal. like they answer the press's questions. <laughs> when I think Anthony Albanese's default is to just brush off questions. But uh, no, I, I understand completely what you're saying. And I, and I wasn't suggesting um, just for my viewers that the, the government should do that. Uh, I was just putting, putting the thought out there. Um, I, I, as, you know, a former treasurer, what do you think the, the current government values most i guess when it comes to the economy because everything seems to be a trade-off right it's either you know we can get inflation under wraps or we can have high high job growth or you know uh, uh we can have housing affordability or we can so what do you think that they're actually gonna because you can't have all of them or maybe you can um wh what do you think their focus should be moving forward well, I think their focus should be on the overall health of the economy. So it should be about making sure that we've got the right 
tax policy settings. We're spending on the right things. We're not wasting money. We're not contributing to the inflationary situation. Um, we're not. We're not engaging. You know, we're not enacting silly policies. Look, I think there's a lot. One thing I have been uh, encouraged by is the fact that they're not doing really silly things, or like they they've knocked back this this idea from the Greens that we should have a moratorium on coal and gas projects, right? I mean, at a time when, you know, the coal price has been... Well, that, that, that's what Adam Bands asked for, right? And, I mean, at a time when the global coal price has been up at 500 or 400 US a tonne for thermal coal, just extraordinary, 500 a tonne for metallurgical coal, for coking coal, the idea that you'd, you'd actually wouldn't develop any new coal mines when the world is crying out for it because there's no gas because right i mean we've got a global conflict and europe's you know worried about uh, uh you know their gas supplies and whether they'll, they'll have enough gas in the winter um yeah it's just it's a bit crazy uh so look i think you know credit full credit to the prime minister for knocking that back and so look i think there's a lot of so that I think they'll be broadly sensible, but what you'll see with a Labor government is that they'll be more aligned to what they perceive as the workers, okay? So they'll be more, and they won't care as much about the costs they impose on business, okay? And so you've seen that recently. And uh, look, the, the, the problem we've got is that there are a lot of well-intentioned policies, and so it's, it's hard to argue against a lot of these things, but they are costly to business. And I mean, this this government will probably do more things like this. We saw that there was that recent decision about uh, from about uh, what is it uh, paid leave for if you suffer domestic violence or family violence. Okay, look, mm -hmm. sure, um, I can see where why that would be a good thing to have. At the same time, employ there is already. Uh, paid leave available, you get four weeks if you're a full-time employee, and uh, this is an additional cost to employers. And I mean, you'd have to be a pretty nasty employer if you didn't, if you, if you didn't look after a, a, an employee of yours who was in that situation. So yeah, I mean, I wonder why this sort of move is, is necessary from, from the government. Uh, I mean, maybe they think it's not going to have much of a cost because, yeah, employers would probably do the right thing to begin with. But look, I guess it's a signal that that this government could, is probably going to be more focused on the workers. It's going to be less concerned about the impacts of its policies on employers. One thing that worried a lot of people, a lot of economists and financial commentators, John Keogh wrote a great column on this in the Fin Review, was when Anthony Albanese in the lead up to the election talked about how, oh, the Fair Work Commission should just agree to wages going up at the rate of inflation. <laughs> and uh, there was a concern that, well, okay, you know, that's the sort of thing that just leads to that wage price spiral where, okay, yeah. prices go up, oh, let's increase wages by the same amount, and then that increases the cost to employers. They pass it on to in prices, and then, oh, let's have wages go up again. 
prices go up again and they just sort of gradually uh, creep up. Well, not gradually, they can increase, they can go up very quickly. Mm. And you know, organisations such as the Bank for International Settlements and uh, you know, various other economic agencies around the world have warned about this wage price spiral and one of the quickest ways to get there is to have automatic uh, indexation of wages to, uh, to inflation. So there were people concerned about what the PM said there uh, back in the election campaign. Ultimately, they, you know, they, it was up to the Fair Work Commission. The Fair Work Commission recommended an increase that wasn't, uh, it wasn't complete. It was just a bit, I think it was a bit lower than the inflation rate um, for, uh, for non-minimum wage workers. It's about 4.6% or something, if I remember correctly. Um, yeah. So that that would be my take on it. I mean, I, I think they won't do anything too crazy, um, and they've resisted some crazy. They've resisted that crazy proposal from the Greens. So good on them for that. Uh, that housing. Yeah, I, that I, housing. I did, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, you know, I was just going to say I um I did see because I, I follow a few Greeny pages on Facebook just to see what they're yapping on about and i did see a lot of angry people today about that very thing you're talking about saying you can't be for sustainability but then allow coal mines to open um so hats off yeah not looking that back uh, but yeah continue sorry i did cut you off um yeah well just on that i mean it's a real threat to labor so it was the coalition that got smashed on the climate change issue last election. I mean, they ended up losing some of their blue ribbon seats. Uh, mm. But Labor's similarly threatened, right? I mean, Labor got, what was it, 31% primary vote? Uh, so, I mean, Labor was lucky to... It's just the way that it played out in terms of the seats that were that were lost and, um, yeah, it, where its vote is, I mean, it, it managed to, to be able to form government even though it it ended up getting fewer votes than uh, than the coalition, um, but yeah, yeah, it's it's in trouble with uh, from the uh, the Greens as well. I mean, all of these inner city seats are are turning green. So um, yeah, be interesting to see what happens in the future. Whether whether Labor has to, I mean, how it survives. It, it's under threat as well as the coalition. Uh, so that, I think that's that's one thing that's going to be fascinating to watch it in the next um next few years uh, just on housing the government's policy isn't going to do much for affordability because it was only going to apply to ten thousand people or so like it was it yeah. was limited in the amount of people it would apply to and i mean it has to apply to hundreds of thousands of people to really make any sort of impact uh, look and the reality is there's not much the federal government can do because the states are more relevant when it comes to housing because, well, one, they're, they've got responsibility for public housing, for social housing. Now, my view is they're just never going to be able to build enough of that. And uh, I mean, one of the problems is with, with social housing is that they're, they're aiming to offer it at below market rent. The challenge there is you're going to have a huge demand for for your social housing because you're offering something that's cheaper than what the market's able to provide, <laughs> right? So you're never going to win there, okay? 
Um, you're always going to be attra attracting more people than you're going to be able to build houses for. Uh, so that's the that so that's probably not the answer. I think the answer is having a more uh, liberal approach to development, allowing more development, particularly in the inner cities where we've where we have uh, heritage restrictions. There are all sorts of zoning rules around our capital cities, and even in um, even across the whole metro area here in Brisbane, for example, where I am, there's a ban on townhouses uh, in low density neighbourhoods, and I mean that's just really silly mm. uh, because yeah, I mean that's constraining the supply of housing. And there was research by Peter Chulip at the Reserve Bank when he was there at the Reserve Bank that showed that these zoning restrictions they they're massively increasing the cost of housing like 50 yeah. or 60 percent something like yeah. that um so yeah that's what that's up to councils but state governments they probably possibly could do something like that with some of their planning legislation um so yeah but the commonwealth really can't do much about about housing so even though it's a an issue um it's a big issue. I'm not sure they really can do much about that. I mean, the big issues the Commonwealth is facing, well, there's a general economic management issue, what its budget deficit is doing for the, the economy, what its budget deficit means for the accumulation of debt and risk to the credit rating in the future and our ability to service that debt. And so, therefore, that's why Jim Chalmers is having to try and trim the budget where he... Uh, where he can he's going to find it difficult though because just because of that reason we were discussing I mean well labor sees itself as the party of the workers it also sees itself as more socially con uh, caring <coughs> more compassionate than the conservative side of politics and so it's going to be very hard for them to to make the substantial budget savings that are necessary if anyone has any pressing questions, now is the time to ask. I'll pick the best one because we've already had Gene for an hour. That just went so quickly. Um, I, I can't believe it's been an hour. I must be nerdy if I like talking about economics for over an hour. I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, good company. I think we threw I, in I, some politics there too. True. Um, I, I, I didn't prepare you for this question and uh, i guess i'm just curious uh and you don't have to have an answer but what do you think of the austrian theory of the business cycle in terms of interest rates i know that's quite niche if you don't have an opinion that's okay that's not a gotcha question the austrian theory of the the business cycle, cycle. um look look i've got to be honest uh, i haven't studied it in any great depth it's not it's not taught in mainstream economic courses yeah. i mean the general view is that the austrians i mean they had some interesting ideas but um it's uh it, it's just not a a theory that is is widely uh widely held by mainstream economists so i really i really can't comment on that i know that they do talk a lot about the role of credit and i mean that's fair enough credit driving you know the credit cycle being relevant to the business cycle and yeah i mean okay i think yeah. they make some good points they generally they're very 
they're very anti-central banks. I know that much. I know that. Rand was it Rand Paul who's a or Ron Paul? Yeah, Maybe I both think both of them. I think they want Rob to abolish and Rand the Fed. Are both. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they do. Um, but Darren might be better on that. Uh, that oh, than yeah. I am. I mean, Darren, you know, you've had Darren Nelson on your show before. Mm. Darren or, or Darren would be able to refer you to people who could talk about the Austrian theory. Uh, but look, it it's just not a it's not a mainstream perspective that doesn't mean it's 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 bad okay i mean because the mainstream <laughs> the people in the mainstream haven't exactly covered themselves in glory with monetary policy in recent years so uh or recent decades so uh um yeah. a lot of people uh, are thanking you for coming on um uh before i ask the final question everyone go to economicsexplored.com if you want to hear more oh, thanks in-depth episode about what's currently going on um Really, I, I think your ability to stay on target when I ask a question is second to none because I tend to ramble and, and take tension, but you really bring it back to the point you want to make, so I really like that. Um, the last question, I guess, uh, and it could go anywhere, but um, the World Economic Forum are seen as this sort of uh, these, they're almost like the, the creature from Jekyll Island these days uh do they have much of an influence here i mean we had do we have world economic forum members in parliament or, or i know this is this can be an abstract question but um what are your thoughts on their influence in australia if any um okay so what what you've got is you've got various uh you know very wealthy people meeting with people in government and I guess the concern is that there's sort of a a global there's a, a view of global elites that's always been the concern about Davos about uh, the World Economic Forum and okay it's it's interesting how it shifted because for many years the concern was that Davos was the Davos view was well it's all about globalization so da, the people Davos was very influential in pushing for globalization in the 90s and liberalization and the establishment of the WTO and letting China into the WTO, cutting tariffs. And look, I mean, I generally think a lot of that's a, that's a good thing. Um, but there was a view that Davos was about that. And uh, you have the global elites get together and they, they benefit from freer borders, freer mobility of people. They benefit from freer trade. Now, the there was a lot of criticism from the left years ago of, of Davos and what Klaus Schwab was doing because they were concerned that, oh, it's, it's part of the neoliberal sort of project. Now the criticism of Davos is coming from the, the right, possibly because Davos it's shifted towards, oh, we're more concerned about social issues and the cl and climate change, possibly because they were worried about all the bad press they were getting <coughs> back in the 90s. So it's really changed the, the criticism of Davos. Look, um, I don't know to what extent Davos itself or, or World Economic Forum or Klaus Schwab is is influential, but what's influential is the... Uh, that core group of people, I mean, the, the people who go, I mean, they're highly influential. I mean, you're talking about Bill Gates, you're talking about um, heads of 
central banks and heads of you know multinational corporations, finance ministers, hugely influential people. I think I don't know who goes from Australia. Probably Mike Cannon Brooks, uh, various other wealthy people. But look, it's not a conspiracy. But the issue is whether there's a a view of what should happen in economies. That's um, that's formed in in a what is it a ski resort in in Switzerland, <laughs> yeah. where the the global elites, so to speak, uh, they agree this is what's good for the world, and well, we all should need to cut our consumption. I mean, we all need to fly less. We all need to um, you know live more sustainably. Even though, I mean, we all think it's hypocritical because they're not doing it, are they? I mean, they still yeah. go in their private jets. I mean. <laughs> Like, yeah. That's the ridiculous thing about it. I mean, they'll have a a seminar on climate change at Davos, and I mean, there's dozens of private jets parked at the airfield. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, I'm not saying I'm not saying that means we shouldn't do anything about climate change or be concerned about it, but it, yeah, I guess it does. It it, it may, people are. Uh, probably rightly sceptical of a lot of the pronouncements that come out of uh, Davos. I mean, I couldn't believe they called it the Great Reset. I mean, if you're going to, if you want to, <laughs> if you really want to worry people and uh, and give them cause, you know, if you want to, you know, give them cause for thinking you've got some sort of conspiracy going on or you've got some evil plan to take over the world uh yeah you'd probably call it something like the great reset i mean just <laughs> yeah yeah i don't know i mean I, I don't know i mean that's the sort of thing you want to do some investigative reporting it's not something that i'm worried about necessarily that i guess there that's there is a general concern about elite people in elite circles sort of internationally meeting together deciding policy influencing uh, local politicians to the extent that they can. So, yeah. 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 The people pulling the strings or, or allegedly pulling the strings, who knows? They'll never tell us or maybe they will. Um, thank you so much for coming on, especially, you know, you've, you're recovering. Well, you've still got COVID. Um, oh, but, do know. I? Oh, I guess no, I've had I it. <laughs> I'm out of isolation. Oh, well, you know. I can't get it through the screen. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's not that much of a, a super bug. Uh, they they weren't able. To, actually, I won't say anything along those. Yeah, lines. yeah. Don't don't get me in case you get uh, demonetized. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to. I was going to make a joke there, but I won't make it. <laughs> well, uh, we'll um, we'll touch base with you again uh, in a, a couple of months' time and and see where we're at as a nation and uh and if people want to watch we, we've had gene on before so you can just search for it in the little youtube bar and and, and uh, watch that episode too but apart from that make sure you check out his website it's on the screen right now um if you want to have some more in-depth conversations but gene thanks for your time thanks for being here pleasure thanks Ace randall and and thanks to everyone listening yeah glad to be uh to to be connecting with you so uh it's been great thank you